0: What's up everybody, this is Shloka from Simplify.tech and you are listening to Simplify Podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online, especially in the tech world and making a lot of money in the process. On this show, I sat down with these people to discuss the ideas, the opportunities and the strategies that they are taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. So, hello and welcome everyone. Uh, we are back at the podcast number two with Krishna Yogi. So, Krishna is going to speak on the topic of fintech cross-border payments.
1: Sure. Uh, thank you, Shloka. And hi, everyone. Uh, this is Krishna. I'm the director for AI at Simplify SoftTech. Um, I'm fascinated uh, with all things technology. I've got uh, about 15 years of experience in Different technology domains, uh, spanning from data science, AI, and fintech. And uh, in today's podcast, we are going to discuss about, you know, cross-border payments and how fintechs are sort of revolutionizing this uh, 50-plus-year-old uh, um, industry.
0: Okay. Thank you so much Krishna. So let us start with the first things. What are cross-border payments? Like what exactly, if you can simplify and tell our listeners, what do it mean? What does it mean? How does it work?
1: Sure. So let's start from the very basics of uh, payments, right? So let's just say, you know, you and I go to a coffee shop and then, you know, uh, there's some team goes to a coffee shop and then, you know, the payment has to be settled. Right so at the end of the whole thing uh let's just say somebody pays the bill and then you know friends want to split up the rest of the bill so you would actually hand over cash in hand right so that's the very basics of payment right at the same time when you pay to a vendor the vendor actually pays to their suppliers and usually most of the suppliers are sitting in the same country right now that becomes a business to business payment now if you take this one step further let's just say this vendor has to import the coffee beans from brazil and uh you know so that is uh outside your country so that becomes a cross-border payments so the whole term cross-border payments is all about how you pay uh, to someone a business or an individual who is not in your own country right now there are two classifications in this the first one is remittance right the second one is uh the so-called cross-border payments when people say cross-border payments they usually refer to business to business payments and not personal payments
0: so uh, would you like to elaborate that how do fintechs help in the cross-border payments
1: sure so let me give you a little bit of interesting history okay so how did this whole cross-border payments uh, how did how did humanity cross border payments back in the times of uh you know roman era actually uh if we go back to the history of silk road you know this is almost 2500 years ago right that's when the original or rather the first the very first cross border payments used to happen you know and the the original fintechs <laughs> you know uh basically started coming up or we in in those days they Uh, It used to be called as banks or, I mean, the the bank term was not there, but it used to be uh, called as hawala. okay? Uh, So even though it has negative connotations now, uh, the original, there were two silk roads uh, in the world from east to west. The the first silk road was from China to, uh, you know, Uzbekistan. From Uzbekistan, it went to, uh, you know, to the land route. And there was a second silk road that passed through India, and then it passed through Arabia and then went to uh, Italy again, right? So essentially, for the leaders, for the leaders who are listening, sorry, uh, yeah, uh, in, there was a lot of uh, exports of silk and uh, porcelain and pottery and luxury goods that used to happen, and uh, you know the the merchants in Arabia would collect gold coins from Romans, right, and then give it to their Indian counterparts, etc., right? Now, the, there's a little bit problem when this was happening. So the problem was basically, you know, when you take your wares and give it to, let's say, a trader in Arabia, and you kind of collect the payment, when right? the payment usually is gold coins, right? Uh, when you collect, right? That's when the risk would be from piracy, right? So let's just say, you know, you've delivered this great shipment of goods and you're coming back and then you have this gold coins, right? Now, because gold is uh, very valuable and in limited quantity, right? Let's just say I steal uh, that coins from you when you're returning on your journey. It's very easy for me to sort of uh, take it from you and then, you know, go and kind of take it off. right? Whereas I can't take your wares because they're large in size, right? So to mitigate this problem. So basically, this was the fundamental problems of traders in the ancient history, right? So the, the to mitigate this problem, what uh, the first, the very first fintech or hawala or bank, whatever you want to call it, they started. The system was that basically you would find a local bank slash hawala dealer, and then you would hand over the gold coins, and that person would give you a coded symbol, okay? So it could be something gibberish, but you know, and then he would say, hand over, let's say, hundred coins to you. Right, which whatever you've given to them. So you take this note and come back all the way to Gujarat. That's the that's the sort of the, uh, that's how the Silk Road passed. So you come back to your Gujarat somewhere in Airport or whatever. And then you hand over that to a local counterpart of the Arabian dealer, right? And then you you give this encrypted code and then that person would hand over the 100 coins back. And then they would do the settlement after a few days, right? So what you have done effectively you've eliminated, uh, you've de-risked yourself from the piracy risk, right? So even if the pirates could get that code from you, they couldn't, they didn't know who was the right person to cash these gold coins, right? So this, uh, this is literally the origin of modern banking, okay? Now let's fast forward this to, you know, 1970. And then you have the so-called SWIFT, which is basically, Society for Worldwide uh, International Telecommunications. So even though it's called telecommunications, actually the messages are uh, used in banking payments. So basically, if I want to send to that aforementioned coffee supplier in Brazil today, and uh, I would have to do something called a swift transfer, right? And this this so-called swift transfer has been the bedrock of cross-border payments for almost 50 years now and uh, now i think uh it's kind of the time for disruption of this so-called swift payment system is coming out
0: understood okay so this is interesting as you said first it was gold but next then it evolved and then banks came into existence. So would you, I'm just taking you back there. Uh, what was the exact code that they used to give to the particular person or what was the gibberish that used to share? Do you have any instance of it?
1: Yeah, so, so Shloka, so the idea was that, you know, there was no, there, there shouldn't be any pattern in that, right? Because let's just say the pattern was your name, okay, Shloka itself, right? Then I could easily copy that and give it to the rightful uh, agent in, in Gujarat, right? And then you would lose all the money. So it was not supposed to be a particular pattern. It is more like a random uh, secret word, okay, that the Arabian merchant would write it for you in a, in a token format. So he'd give you a piece of paper, write that secret code for you and then say, okay, you know, Shloka needs needs to be paid uh, 100 gold coins, right? And then you would carry that and give it to your, uh, the merchant's agent uh, in Gujarat, and then that agent would give you 100 gold coins. This is actually exactly the way, if you've seen some of these movies, they show you this hawala transactions, which are basically illegal right now, but that was the original sort of banking. You know, that's how things started, basically and then what happened is that these, these so-called, you, we call them bank agents, let's call them bank agents, let's not call them have dealers, let's just call them bank agents, right? So what used to happen is, or money transfer agents, I think that's a better word. So the are called money transfer agents, uh, you know, they write the secret code to you, you give it to them and then that money transfer agent in, in uh, let's say, you know, maybe like something like Makkah, right? That was the, Makkah was the, basically the, the trading hub, you know, that's through which the, the silk route passed, you know, in the Arabia. And then what happens is, let's just say, you know, they would have a transaction of whom to pay how much. So they, they'll, they'll put 100 coins against you. And then let's say maybe they'll put 100 coins against me. And then they would have this whole uh, so-called ledger, you know, from whom they've taken money. And then after 15 days, this ledger will be uh, physically uh, transferred by the agent to Gujarat. Right. And then that agent would now have a ledger which has secret codes and amounts to be given to different traders. Right. And then you can after 15 days of your ship travel or whatever, you go there and you collect that uh, payment from this person. Of course, if let's say you traveled really quickly and uh, that secret code was not transferred uh, to the money transfer agent in Gujarat, you would have to wait basically. Right. That This is how it happened. But it, it, then, then what happened is, interestingly, uh you know basically the the after some time what happened was there was uh money going from gujarat to arabia as well right so basically uh let's just say you know the the traders in uh arabia came here they bought something you know or or they wanted to sell something so there was money to be sent from gujarat to somebody as well right so the the money transfer agents in gujarat and arabia actually found that You didn't have to uh, transfer real gold. So you could just square off like between your customers. Let's just say I have 100 customers and they need to be paid, uh, I don't know, 10,000 gold coins. And then you had uh, 50 customers and they need to be paid like 9,000 gold coins, right? So instead of transferring 1,000, 10,000, 9,000, you could just square off that uh, uh, basically difference, right? And then you just have to pay me a thousand coins right this is called as this is the this is called a settlement okay so in in, in banks today they still do what is called a settlement today right and it's called an at the end of the day settlement or at the end of uh you know three-day settlements or whatever the word settlement is literally settlement because you have a bunch of payments that uh you know you've gotten from your counterparty and then you have uh you know you have bunch of payments that you have to send to your counterparty and then you literally settle them and then you square off those payments and the remaining amount will be transferred right uh, so that's the whole word of settlement right and then what happened interestingly after a while these these agents have noticed is that these agents i mean sorry the merchants who were involved in this trade were kind of happy with just leaving their gold coins with them right they didn't have this so-called urgency to take them because anyway they knew you know maybe i have a gold coin now but i have to give it to somebody else right so they would just use the money transfer agent to make the payments for their own suppliers right and that's how what happened was that the so-called money transfer agents actually realized that uh you know nobody was taking the merchants were not taking the gold coins from them because they should trust them right so they started giving out interest so what they did was they said okay you know how about this i take your gold coin you know, leave it with me for six months or one year, and then we're going to give, pay you some interest on top of that. So I'll I'll take this gold and give it to somebody else. You know, I'll loan it to some local merchant uh, whom I'm, you know, know whom I'm dealing with, right? And then they would pay you interest. So so it's like a wonderful thing, isn't it? If you think about it. So this, this money transfer agents were helping me in transferring money from, let's just say, different countries. On top of that, they're also giving uh, interest out to me if I leave the money, right? So does it sound familiar, right? This is exactly what modern banking, how modern banking works, right? Except instead of gold coins, the settlement currency is United States dollar, US dollar, right? So the settlement currency for cross border payments today is US dollar, right? It's exactly the same way, except that it's, there's no longer these, you know, single money transfer agents, but it's a global banks, you have, uh, banks like you know jp morgan who is basically doing the settlement function and you have other banks local banks you know uh, who are taking money from people in the country and giving it out to their counterparts in, across the globe right and that's basically the fabric of how payments happen in not
0: banking okay okay so coming up the next question how has cross-border payments evolved with innovation what are the innovations that uh, or the reforms that they have brought in cross-border payments
1: right so so basically you know uh, if you if you if you go dig, dig deep and uh, think about it right uh, technically speaking we moved from the so-called gold coins right and then uh, we moved to the paper currency, which is backed with gold, right? For the most of history, if you look at the last five hundred years, uh, from gold, we came to what is called as paper currency, but the paper currency was actually backed by gold, right? And the reason why we had to move to paper currency was because, you know, getting the exact change, in a gold coin was hard, right? Let's just say... You got this gold coin you know it could be worth thousands of dollars right so if you want to do a transaction worth you know two dollars how do you do that right so that's why uh what the these actually these so-called money lenders right the money agents money transfer agents right they became money lenders they became banks over time then these are the guys who decided uh, or rather they said okay i'm gonna you give me the gold i'm gonna give you a, what is called as warehouse receipt and then if you give them 20 dollars worth of gold which was basically one ounce for most of the american history uh, so basically then they gave you that 20 dollars bill and then you could have change as well so you could say i want like two dollar bills five dollar bills etc etc so and then you could do commerce pretty easily. so from gold we moved to paper uh, from that paper uh, we moved to electronic or digital right so swift was that the very first innovation in digital payments right uh, so basically what swift did is upon the telecommunication protocol we have so we used to have telephone calling you know telephone calling is is basically almost 60 70 years old right so on top of the telephone calling uh, they they introduced the swift network basically right so the backbone of swift network is essentially uh, the telecommunications network and using that they would send out the so called swift messages Okay, and uh, because uh, back then you know, brand bandwidth was so limited uh, you know you had to go with the so called fixed messages and things like that and that, that legacy still carries on in fact there's not much innovation in swift networks for the last 50 years except cursory innovation you know uh, so basically That's what is happening for the last uh, 50-plus years uh, in in the cross-border payments.
0: So how can blockchain help cross-border payments according to uh, this latest technology? Or how how can blockchain, uh, you know, help in getting the ease of cross-border payments?
1: Sure, sure. So this is actually the crux of the whole, uh, you know, question, right? Or rather this whole podcast. Uh, why should we use blockchain itself, right? Let's just actually first understand what's the problem right now with swift payments and cross-border payments, right? The biggest payment is, uh, the biggest problem is basically cost and time, right? So let's say if I want to send a message to someone in, uh, I don't know, Brazil, let's just take the case of Brazil, right? So my merchant, my partner who I'm buying this coffee beans from, uh, you know, I could send him a message on, on WhatsApp or I could send him an email or, you know, I can call him or whatever, it takes like a second, right? So less than a second or uh, an electronic communication would go to that person at the end of the uh, other end of the world and then they can say I want to buy this stuff from you and then we agree and then you know that person ships their goods but then when it, come, when it comes to making a payment uh, the, the fastest payment from let's just say a country like India to Brazil is, is at least two three days right uh, unless you have a special relationship and mechanism that could be in ours but that would cost you a lot more money. So the question is, why is this payment taking three, four days to clear, right? When I send a payment, international payment, or so-called international SWIFT transfer or international wire payment, uh, usually takes three, four days to clear, and it costs 2-3% two, two, of your actual amount, right? And, uh, and what, uh, there's a minimum fee of $40 or something like that as well, right? So why is that it costs so much and takes so much time when I can actually... Uh, at the end of the day a swift message like we discussed previously is just a message right so so i mean one has to wonder why it takes so much time and money to make this payment in the in the 21st century and the answer is is complicated it's not as simple as you know you would think it's not a technical problem per se right because if it was a technical problem technologists could have solved it quite easily right but it's not a technical problem it's more of a trust problem because money at the end of the day is a question of trust right so when you give money when you go put money in your bank and then you say send this money to my friend who's in Delhi let's say right your bank is a trusted entity right you're trusting your bank to make that payment happen Right. You wouldn't give the money to a random person in the street and expect to them to deliver to your friend in Delhi. Right. So the question of tra- when the question of trust comes, there's a lot of things that need to be involved. Right. So basically, uh, how do you establish trust? Right. Uh, in case of your bank, let's just say a bank like ICIC or HDFC uh, <clears throat> has to put up a lot of capital to even start the banking activity. Right. So it puts takes that capital and puts it with RBI or the central bank, right? And then now you can trust this bank because the government is saying, hey, don't worry, you know, uh, I have this thousand crores uh, pay so-called paid capital. So even if RBI, uh, even if ICICI shuts their business tomorrow, I will give you some of those payment back, right? So let's say you put 10,000, you might get something back from RBI, right? That is a promise that RBI is giving to you <clears throat> when you are you know, using a so-called scheduled bank, right? That's why you're comfortable with the bank and then you trust the bank, right? And then over time what happens is the banking system runs on trust, right? Because they have they have this capital, they've earned the brand recognition, et cetera. And then they're happy, you know, people are trusting them, et cetera. And you put the money, you make the payments, right? Now, the same thing applies in a much larger complicated way uh, when you're doing a cross border payments, right? So let's understand the action mechanics of a cost border payment. Let's say when you, a, a merchant in uh like coffee sh- coffee day in india uh requests brazilian coffee beans right what happens is basically uh you go to your local bank and then you go to a bank like icici whom you have relationship with and then you say okay I'm, i want to import uh, coffee beans worth uh dollars from this merchant in brazil right so then <clears throat> then the, co- the 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 bank in india your bank right they will say okay do you have a license to import these goods? because uh, remember like india has a lot of regulations about imports and exports right and uh, they have certain rules on forex payments and all that so the bank would then check whether uh, you have the license to import you have the you know uh, the the balance of, to import use so many dollars etc right and then you have when you have all the clearance right so then what happens is the bank will say okay fine you know deposit Whatever you know, for ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars, it's roughly about fourteen lakh rupees, right? So they'll say, okay, please go ahead and deposit fourteen lakh rupees in this bank account, okay? And then, <clears throat> then what happens is this bank literally takes this money, uh, they will send it out to their head office, okay? And then basically the head office will then talk with RBI or one of those entities, one of the rbf related banks, which is which basically acts as a correspondent bank, which is essentially has a license to do a deal in forex or any forex currency. So basically they'll take that rupees from you and then they'll uh, give you the dollars and then they will pass the dollars on to your Brazilian counterparty, right? But what happens is, again, you know, this this money will now, because it's in dollars, now it comes on the jurisdiction of US banks like JP Morgan. So then the JP Morgan gets involved and they say, okay, I'll take your dollars and give it to your... Brazilian Correspondent Bank, right? And then that Brazilian Correspondent Bank will give it to your merchant's <laughs> uh, merchant bank, right? So as you can see here, there's only four or five banks that get involved when you want to do cross-border payments, okay? Uh, not just that, you know, every bank that is involved in the chain has to put up a certain amount of capital. Because let's just say, uh, you come and say, I want to transfer $20,000. Let's just say there are 50 customers like that together they want to transfer I don't know a million dollars right so then your ICICI bank has to have that million dollars with them right you know because they're taking in rupees they're not going to get the dollars immediately right so they have to maintain a pool of dollars uh with themselves right so this is all called uh maintaining you know balances or Forex balances or whatever so everywhere every step of the way you have to have you have to post some collateral with your counterparty correspondent bank so what happens is uh quickly the whole correspondent banking system there's a lot of capital locked up because that is what is used uh for transferring the money between different banks okay i hope this is making sense right this is a little complicated but this is the crux of cross border payments and why it's so expensive why it's time consuming because every time Uh, you make a payment, your bank will settle uh, at the end of the day with another bank and that bigger bank would settle with another much bigger bank at the end of the day, right? And because there's so many settlements involved, right? Each settlement usually done at the end of the day, which means your payments will take that three days or five days or whatever, right? And this is the reason why there's so much time delay involved because the payments, even though they're just digital things right it's just information but it's actually money being moved between uh this bank and another bank right and then settlements happen at only at the end of the day only then you the other bank will process the payments and when if there's a bank holiday the things uh get delayed even further etc etc and that's why these things can take anywhere from one day to five days or sometimes 10 days uh if, if it's a very remote country in africa could take that kind of time because that particular currency and that particular banking counterparty might not be very popular which means nobody there's not much of interest in doing business with that particular bank in some remote country in africa right as a result of that what happens is the cost quickly escalate right so usually the richer countries uh, and the popular currencies if you're transferring money between let's say japanese yen and dollar you don't have to pay uh, upwards of two percent or whatever. You can get away with paying 0.5 percent. Right? Whereas, if you want to transfer money from some unknown currency like Zimbabwean rand and South African rand and let's just say some currency in Africa in a different country, right? Uh, you know, it'll take a lot of time and a lot of money because uh, you know nobody nobody has that balances in the correspondent banking chain. Yeah, so this is a crux of the matter.
0: Okay, got it understood. So, as we know, this is a very complicated process. But now that blockchain is into the picture, how do you think that banks coming on this platform called as blockchain can help them ease this transparency or ease this payment system where it is taking whereas for example, if I say in a simpler format, if it is taking 10 days, uh, mm-hmm. and the banks come here on the blockchain platform where they are being more transparent it it mm-hmm. might take 5 days or 3 days uh, am i right on this point
1: yeah you're you're right on that point except that uh, if you're using blockchain and things like cryptocurrencies like bitcoin they can happen in 5 seconds not 5 days okay and that's the beauty of the whole cryptocurrency revolution at least right and then we'll we'll get into a little bit more details of how the exact mechanics would work but yeah so bitcoin is poised to revolutionize the global payment network and uh we believe that you know it's it's a very tight competition to swift at least right because as we already discussed swift is already pretty mature so which means there's not going to be any further innovation on swift right Understood. uh yeah so but like let's discuss exactly how bitcoin can revolutionize swift uh i mean the cross-border payment network and uh actually be a very strong competitor to Swift network itself right now let's go back to the the swift network as well we discussed that dollar is the primary currency right and and one has to wonder why dollar is the primary currency okay and the reason is actually pretty simple so it's almost like you know uh you know you've got all these different Uh, roads, right? Let's say if you're in a city and you're going to a different city, you have a bunch of, you know, main roads and side roads, and then eventually all the main roads will lead to a highway and then highway is where the traffic is the fastest, right? And then after a highway, then you get, you you have another main road and then you have a side road, right? This is usually how it works, right? And the reason why highways are so big is because there's a lot of uh, speed you know fast going traffic there and right? there's very little distractions right similarly in currencies also uh, dollar is currently the world's most dominant and liquid currency okay what do we mean by that basically uh, everyone wants to convert their currency uh, to dollar to make a payment and then convert from that dollar to the local currency let's just say uh, you know uh, I, want to tr- I want to pay to my president counterpart right I start with rupees and then go to my local bank convert that to dollars and then uh that you know i mean when i say i am not doing it my bank is doing it for me so basically it gets converted into dollars and then that dollars are moved around by JPMorgan morgan to the brazilian uh forex operator and then that forex operator would move to real right uh this is usually the chain of uh process right instead of that you know you might be thinking hey why can't we just uh convert from rupee to real right there's no reason why we couldn't there's no technical reason why we couldn't is just a business reason uh if you want to do that you know if you want to have somebody you want to move the dollar right from rupees to real you've got to have a merchant or forex operator who's ready to do that right and because there's not much liquidity in that pair in that currency pair which is basically the rupee and real what happens is that if you actually move right away from rupee to real uh it costs you more it might cost you four five percent because you know remember it's all trading right it's real-time trading and all that so it might cost you more so instead of that what happens is people are just used to using dollar as a, a medium currency right so basically they, they, they move the payments whatever 200 currencies we have they move that from that to dollar and then from from dollar they move to a uh, currency of choice, right? This is what is happening is uh, <clears throat> you're actually paying lesser than otherwise, right? Single single currency pay. uh So, now, what Bitcoin slash cryptocurrencies can do is that uh, you can actually uh, instead of using dollar and using the correspondent banking system, you can use a crypto exchange, right? In, in, in reality, crypto exchange is nothing but a forex operator. Isn't it right? Because the cryptocurrency is also a currency, right? Uh, except that with cryptocurrency, uh, you don't have to worry about all the other trusted entities like JP Morgan that are getting involved in the business. See, when a currency when a currency, when when a currency from India is sent to real, why should a bank or like JP Morgan, who is not a part of this merchant transaction, get involved, right? But they have to be involved because Dolby is involved. But uh, if you're using Bitcoin, there is no bank that needs to be involved, right? So the simple, the mechanics is much more simple enough. So you transfer money uh, from, let's say, your ICC bank, right? And then that goes to a cryptocurrency exchange in India. Okay, they convert these rupees to cryptocurrency, like, let's say, Bitcoin, and they wire the Bitcoin to a Brazilian cryptocurrency exchange, right? And then immediately, what you could do is, uh, you know, that that cryptocurrency exchange can convert that to Brazilian real, right? Because cryptocurrency exchanges operate 24-7, there's no such thing as banking holiday for them. And uh, you know, if you have one currency like Bitcoin itself, it's got pretty high liquidity both in India and Brazil, right? Which means the whole transaction gets much more, much more quicker, because you cut off almost three, four counterparties in the chain, right? And uh, the additional advantage here is that uh, you know you're not leaking out your trans merchant information to somebody like J.B. Morgan, right? Who's whom, whom whom you don't even have to involve now, right? It's just like your Indian exchanges. You have an Indian bank, Indian cryptocurrency exchange, then Brazilian bank and Brazilian currency cryptocurrency exchange. So you you cut down. You've taken the dollar banking system here. As a result, what is happening is you've cut down at least two counterparties. The number of days come down, and the other big thing is there's a lot of regulation for the dollar banks, right? Like JP Morgan, they have to follow a lot of regulation for whatever reason, right? Because U.S. government has a lot of regulation. So you don't have to abide by all the other crazy US regulations. You don't have to do all the crazy PEP checks and AML checks that US wants to do, right? So you, you will still abide by all the regulations of the Indian government and the Brazilian government. But you don't have to abide by the regulations by US government, which means that cost is, is out. That time for regulation and verification is out. You're already saving on at least 30 40% of the payment fee. You know, The funny thing is, it actually gets better. There are some other reasons why uh, it's much more cheaper. In fact, what I can tell you is that if, uh, you know, in the next few years, I'm pretty sure that a lot of, uh, you know, B2B cross-border payments would move to Bitcoin. Uh, we use Bitcoin as a payment medium, like the way we are using dollar. And as a result, what happens is our payments could come down, the cost would come down by 8 percent And the time would come down from, let's say four or five days to few hours uh, going forward. That's very much feasible. And uh, I foresee a world where, you know, uh, the so-called Bitcoin cryptocurrency becomes a native currency for all cross-border
0: payments, like this. Interesting, this is very interesting. And I would like to also have uh, episode number two on this detailed topic for crypto and Bitcoin, where, you know, uh, lots of payment exchange or payment, uh, where there is going to be an expensive exchange, the cost cutting mm-hmm. it will, will be more the, there will be uh, less uh, in lesser time there will be more transactions and more pr- productivity thereafter so surely uh, we come down to this conclusion of this episode and this was a really knowledgeable and insightful episode thank you krishna for joining us and giving us your time i hope the listeners also like it and if you guys like it do share it and share this knowledge we would we would surely uh, host another episode with Krishna. So I'm
1: pretty excited about the future of cross-border payments with uh, uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies. So uh, yeah and I thank you guys for giving me this opportunity uh, to share my knowledge uh, in this forum. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.